Welcome to Matthew Felix, the radio episodes, Travelers on Travel. I'm Matthew Felix, author of the books With Open Arms, short stories of misadventures in Morocco, and the new Porcelain Travels. In February of 2018, what is now my Matthew Felix on Air video podcast began as an internet radio program in downtown San Francisco. The radio episodes, Travelers on Travel podcast, feature segments from that radio show, in which I talk travel with travel writers, journalists, photographers, and filmmakers. I hope you like the show. And don't forget to check out the current video podcast incarnation, Matthew Felix on Air, available here, as well as on Facebook and YouTube. Thanks for listening, and talk soon. Hey, check out my new book, Porcelain Travels, Humor, Horror, and Revelation, In, On, and Around, Toilets, Tubs, and Showers, an Amazon number one new release in four categories, including travel humor, and winner of Gold for Humor in the 2018 Solas Awards for travel writing. You can also check out Porcelain Travels' companion podcast of the same name, which comprises readings from eight stories, including two recorded before a live audience. Porcelain Travels the Book is available in paperback and ebook on Amazon and other online retailers. Savani just moved away from the Bay Area, so I thought while I had her here, I wanted to seize the opportunity and not let her get away. And because I, and I just want to talk about something that, that she's done three times, go to Antarctica, that I just find so fascinating, so interesting, and I have not had a chance to talk to her. Like I said, I have heard uh, the story that's in, and read the story also that's in Hidden Compass, so I do know a little bit about her experiences there. But I've never had a chance to sit down and just um, to talk to her in general about the experiences. And it turns out Sabine has not actually talked to her at length, it sounds like, and also has a lot of questions. So... Sabine has agreed to stay around as well. And so we're basically just going to turn the tables on Savani and it's going to be all about Savani. <laughs> Two interviewers yeah, and one interview. Exactly. <laughs> this is, she's kind of going to take the, Bob's place in this segment. <laughs> we're just going to talk about, we talked about Bob the whole last se- session. So now we're going to, or segment. So now we're going to talk about Savani. Um, so I already did the intro, so we're not going to do that again. Anyone who missed the intro, who wasn't here for our first hour, can rewind if you're listening on the podcast. And um, But one thing I do want to talk about that we just brushed over, and I don't want to go into a lot of detail, but I can't, I, I just feel like we have to address this. You were a federal public defender. So tell us a little bit about that, because obviously, and then, I, and then of course, I want to talk about the transition from doing that to, but what... Tell us just a little bit about your career, just a quick synopsis of that. Sure. I uh, I knew I wanted to go to law school from a pretty young age. I was really? kind of a strange child. Very strange. <laughs> <laughs> but And I went to law school knowing that I wanted to work in criminal law, that I wanted to be a trial attorney, and I wanted to either be a prosecutor or a defense attorney. Really was leaning towards being a prosecutor. And got the opportunity to work for the federal public defender initially in Dallas, Texas, and then later in the Southern District of Texas. And uh, just fell in love with defense work and and the work that I was doing there. And also, I kind of enjoyed that it was harder than than the work sometimes is as a prosecutor. Yeah. More creative. Yeah. But it it was a great experience. And it was something that I easily could have done for a lifetime and absolutely loved my career really okay so it wasn't the, well see now i'm really glad i asked so it wasn't the sort of thing where 
oh God, I'm sober now. Why did I decide to do this? I want to go pursue my passions. That was one of your passions. You were actually happy doing it. I was very happy doing it. All right. Well, that makes my next question that much more interesting. (laughs) So if you were happy doing it, uh, why did you go from doing that to sailing across the Drake Passage, chasing storms through Tornado Alley and bushwhacking through Wandon Forest in search of mountain gorillas? Well, so the opportunity came up to move into travel writing and photography full time. And I was doing photography on the side in Texas. I was doing the, you know, the art festival circuit and I was doing stuff in galleries in Texas while I was practicing. And uh, there just came a time where I had a chance to do more of it. And I figured, you know, my law degree isn't going anywhere. I'm still licensed to practice law in Texas. I could always go back to it if I really, if, you know, if this was, this went really badly. Right. But, uh, but I wanted to give it a shot because I figured these opportunities were not going to come back around. Interesting. Interesting. Was it, and it sounds as if it wasn't, but I'm still going to ask anyway, because there might be a little more there. Was it difficult to make the transition? I mean, was it difficult giving up something, first of all, that you loved, but also secondly, that was something stable, secure, you knew you had an income, you knew, you know, was it difficult? Because so many of us dream of doing something else. So many of us dream of leaving our day jobs, making that jump, but few people actually do it. And And again, particularly if you have something that you love doing, and that's paying well enough and that sort of thing. So so was it challenging to let that go and make the jump? It was. It was challenging to make the jump for a lot of reasons. I mean, one of the big ones was, yes, I really liked being a lawyer. I wasn't one of those lawyers who burnt out and was just looking for something else. But stability. Right. You know, and I'd put a lot into going to law school and, and right. doing all of that and taking Not a, a small bar exam. Exactly. Uh-huh. And it's all stuff that I'd loved doing. It wasn't, you know, I never regretted any of it. And so walking away from that was difficult. Interesting. But it also gave me a chance to, you know, I was living in Texas at the time, which I loved, but my entire family's in California. Mm-hmm. So it gave me a chance to come back to California too. And I figured, you know, I'll spend some more time with my family. I'd been away. I left right after high school and hadn't moved back. So you grew up here in California. I grew up in California yep. and, you know, left for college and lived all sorts of places in the U.S. in the, you know, 13, 14 years after high school before coming back here. And so it was nice to, to come back and you know, I had a niece, I had a nephew and nieces that I loved and didn't get to see very often so it gave me a chance to do that too yeah but it was also you know i just i really like being outside and it gave me a chance to kind of do these things that i never imagined would be a career the antarctica is very or the antarctica i keep doing that i keep mixing up because we say the arctic but we just say antarctica or so when i was say, preparing for this show i kept tripping over that but what or, can you say you can say the antarctic you, oh the antarctic you or antarctica yeah I struggle with English a lot, just like like Sabine struggles with not speaking Spanish. (laughs) Um, Especially when surprised. Right, exactly. But what I was going to say is, you know, you chose Antarctica, which is obviously, yes, very different from a courtroom. (laughs) Very different from a courtroom. So speaking of Antarctica, that's going to be the main focus here, your experiences there. But I couldn't help. I was curious um, about Antarctica. And there were a couple of things I didn't know. I'm sure there's a million things I didn't know about Antarctica. But I did look it up on Wikipedia, and I found some very interesting facts that I want to share. Now, of course, it's Wikipedia. I think it's fairly reliable. None of these sound too suspect. So Antarctica covers more than 14 million square kilometers, which is 5,400,000 square miles, making it the fifth largest continent, which is about 1.3 times as large as Europe. So that's interesting. Um, but this fact was even more, way more interesting, quite frankly. About 98% of Antarctica is covered with ice, that I knew. But what I didn't know is that the ice covering Antarctica averages 1.9 kilometers or 1.2 miles, 6,200 feet thick. 
over a mile thick of ice. I mean, that's insane. That's insane. I'm sure anyone who already knows about Antarctica is like, yeah, that's everybody knows that. I didn't know that. That's a lot of ice. And now all of a sudden, I'm way more worried about global warming than I was before. <laughs> and, well, and people who study global warming are going there digging in the ice cores down through all of those thousands of feet of ice to go back in time and see what the atmosphere used to look like. Yeah, right? yeah. Which is really cool because you yeah. think about, you know, ice cores when you realize how deep it is. You 1. realize 2 how miles. far back in time Exactly. You can go. That is insane. Antarctica, Antarctica I'm going to struggle with that word throughout the whole, uh, we're right. just going to call it A, or we're going to call it that Southern <laughs> Hemisphere. On average is the coldest, driest, and windiest continent. Although today on, in San Francisco, it's pretty windy. I think it might be windier today <laughs> actually here in San Francisco than it is on Antarctica. But it's the coldest, driest, windiest continent and has the highest average elevation of all the continents, which I also didn't know. So obviously there are a lot of mountains down there. Yes, indeed. Antarctica. Okay, I love this one too. Antarctica is a desert. Now, I think I actually remember that from high school. But still, seeing that again, I had completely forgotten about that because, again, it's ice is water. So it's a bunch of frozen water. But Antarctica well, is a desert. Well, are also cold. Exactly. I don't know how many deserts at night. Out in. At, yeah, yeah, at it's night. Yeah, at night. very cold. And it's really frustrating because you're like, I'm in a desert. And then as soon as the sun sets, you're freezing. You're freezing. <laughs> yes. You don't have to worry about that in Antarctica, though. Because <laughs> you're, you're always freezing. You're always freezing. Oh, and the sun, and doesn't, the sun set. doesn't set depending on the time of year. Yes. Yeah. I've, I've, I've experienced that up north. I have not experienced that down south. Um, but it's a desert with annual precipitation of only 200 millimeters, which is eight inches along the coast and even less inland. This is another great fact. The temperature in Antarctica has reached negative 89.2 degrees centigrade or negative 128.6 degrees Fahrenheit. And that's without wind chill that's in cold. the windiest place on Earth. So I don't even want to think about how cold <laughs> one negative 128.6 degrees is with a wind chill. Cold. Very cold. <laughs> And we have someone here in the studio who can attest to that firsthand. The last fact I'm going to mention is not super fascinating, but it's still, I, was, I found it somewhat interesting. Anywhere from 1,000 to 5,000 people reside throughout the year at the research stations scattered across the continent. So I wouldn't have thought there were that many people, but again, it's the fifth largest continent. So if we're talking about population density, that's actually still not very many people. <laughs> So my first question then is probably a very obvious one. When did you realize that your spirit animal was the penguin? <laughs> I don't know if it's the penguin or if it's the albatross. Oh, the albatross. That's right. In the story, it's the albatross. In the story, it's the albatross. might be the wandering albatross. Okay. But. Why not the Arctic? The Arctic. Fear of all the polar bears? No. Because there aren't polar bears down south, are there? There are not. This is something and else I was, I was wondering recently, about. Actually, this past summer, I was up in Svalbard photographing the polar bears. And okay. it's amazing. I love right. the Arctic. Okay. But it doesn't fascinate me in the way that Antarctica does. Okay, why is that? Because it is pretty developed. I mean, at pretty far north latitudes, northern latitudes. You still yep. have, you know, towns. Um, and you still have people living there. And you still have a lot of information. Well, see, and that was the other another fact that I thought was in my list, but that, that, that now I remember. Apparently, I didn't put it in my list. That was really interesting to me is I had to look at the map before this segment. And I noticed that Antarctica... There are no other land masses going into the, is it the Antarctic Circle? Correct. Right. So that, whereas, yeah, like I've been in Norway in the Arctic Circle. Exactly. So there are land masses and I, Canada presumably goes up into the, to the Arctic Circle, right? Absolutely. So they're in Russia. So versus Antarctica, which is this own, its own isolated world that really, I mean, so I assume that's just a major distinction that it creates a completely Absolutely. different environment. And the difficulty of getting there yeah. is just 
I mean, that in and of itself is something that had always fascinated me. So let's talk about that. <laughs> so right. you've been there three times. I have. Let's focus first on your first experience. Yeah, my first experience, I was actually in law school at the time. And I there was a trip that I could have made that coincided with my winter break. So, you know, happy coincidence. But then that's going to be summer down there. Summer right? down there. Yep. Right. And uh, so I went. And it was a larger ship. Pretty big ship. It was the biggest ship I'd ever take that I've ever taken. Okay, down. so first of all, but let's point out. So to get there, you do you always go by boat? Yes. I mean, when I say you, I mean general you. I mean, most people aren't going to fly in, or most, can you also fly in? Most people are not going to fly in. There are some people who do fly in, and there are, you know, a few groups that will lead a tour that way. But they're generally from for the average person. I mean, Antarctica is already a difficult trip to make. Yeah incorporating flying into that makes it almost impossible for most people just financially or both financially but also there's a lot of unpredictability in flying more unpredictability than there is in getting there by boat and why is that because the weather is so variable okay and you so just don't know if you'll be able to do it you don't know if you'll be able to get there interesting if you'll be able to take off and go and there have been I, I i know people who have made plans to fly in and they waited two weeks and they just couldn't really they couldn't do two it two weeks interesting the weather is that variable huh that's it because i would have almost thought it would be the opposite i couldn't get across to morocco one time um what was would have been my second trip and we ended up not being able to do it because of the waters in the strait of gibraltar and so i would have kind of thought the opposite i would have thought well if you're avoiding the rough yeah. waters and that sort of thing but there are also not that many places to land a plane in antarctica right so that's part of it too it's not like you can divert to another runway yeah. Right. Well, or I, was to gonna, I was gonna say, you know, the variable weather that impacts the ships that are crossing the Drake Passage too. Do the ships just go anyway? Some do. Some turn around. Some don't go at all. Uh, it just kind of depends on what you see coming. Hmm. And then sometimes you just don't see things coming. Right. And you're right. there, you know. But but the people who are taking ships through, we're talking about the Drake Passage for the most part. There, you can get there from New Zealand, but most people who go go to the Antarctic Peninsula, and they leave from Argentina, Ushuaia, Chile, somewhere like down Ushuaia, there. Yeah. yeah, from Tierra del Fuego. And um, and the Drake Passage is considered the roughest sea in the world. And so the people who are willing to make that trip are generally very experienced. And, you know, so, there, so there's that. Or in law school. <laughs> well, I wasn't the one who was, like, steering the boat. You weren't through, driving the boat. Right? Yeah. <laughs> you didn't rent a boat to do that. No, yeah. no. It was not Somebody me else piloting did that. the boat. Okay. Okay. Thanks <laughs> for that ship. clarification. Good. Good. <laughs> and so so you do have, there is some amount of experience that goes in there. Um, and, and ships can ride out a storm if they have to. You know, it's not ideal and it's not always great, but uh, but it's, you know, it's doable. And it's been it's a trip that's been made for many many years, right? I mean, since exploration in Antarctica started, uh, and the Drake Passage is named for you know Sir Francis, Sir Francis Drake. Drake, a local, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> our very own San Francisco Bay's very own Sir Francis Drake, right. yeah. And uh, and so you know so there's been whaling and sealing and all sorts of activities down there. So people have been making that trip for a very long time. And so there's a little bit more feeling that, you know, at least we know what we're getting into. Whereas right. flying to Antarctica is not something that's done often. It's not something that's done a lot. So there's a lot more unpredictability. That's so interesting. Who did you go with? So you said you were on a boat. Was this an organized tour? Was it? Who'd you go with? Yeah, it was, um, I mean, the way I got there was sort of roundabout, but it was a National Geographic trip. Oh, it was National Geographic. Yeah, okay, I've was. heard of them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. They do a few. Yeah. So you're on the boat, and um, I don't know if you want to talk about being on the boat, or I guess what I'm curious, because I'm sure that's a whole 
that's probably three three interviews. But I'm curious, you know, as you're on the boat and you're approaching Antarctica, like what was your first impression? You know, there were there were several. I mean, the first iceberg was yeah. just. Tell us about that because that was my next question. What's it like to see, particularly? You know, I don't think I've ever seen an iceberg. I've seen glaciers, but I, that's that's one of my one of my questions. I'm just curious, what's that like? You see this massive. Yeah, I mean, I'd seen icebergs in Alaska, but they're nothing in size. Well, that's what I suspected. To what exactly. You see in Antarctica, right? Because exactly. these are breaking off the ice shelves, and and the arches and the shapes and you know all of the contours. It's just seeing something that large that has been carved entirely by basic elements is just unlike any other experience on the planet. And how how big are we talking? I mean, they can be you know several stories high they can be hundreds of feet high wow. they can be when you're talking about the big tabular bergs if you get down we and we did on this first trip we got down into the Weddell Sea and that's where you find the the big tabular icebergs and so these what's are a big tabular chunks, what's tabular mean they're big chunks of the ice shelf that okay. are broken off and so they're called tabular because they look like tables they're they're flat uh, on top, okay okay right? like mesas yeah and um and they can be i mean some of the biggest ones have been, you know, the size of Manhattan and the size of Rhode Island. And those are the, wow. those are the really oh big ones. You know, those are the really big ones. Most of the ones you see aren't that big, but they're still big enough. I mean, we're talking neighborhoods and small towns and, you know, they're, yeah. they're huge. And so it is, I mean, even looking at it, it's hard to sort of gauge just how big these things are when you're looking at them. Is it a challenge to convey that sense of scale as a photographer. That's exactly what I was just Absolutely. thinking. Right. Absolutely. It's like when I, w- I went to Egypt and saw, you know, I think this happens to everyone who goes to Egypt and sees the Sphinx. You think it's, this is probably the opposite actually though. You think it's this massive thing and you get to the Sphinx and it's still big, but it's way smaller. Although, but I'm, again, it was probably the opposite with the icebergs. You photograph icebergs and they look massive. In real life, they're probably just that much more just... They're just huge. Yeah. And yeah. it's, I mean, and it's really hard to sort of, I can't compare it to something else because yeah. I've never seen anything else like that. Yeah. We'll just have to go, I think. You do. Yeah. Just, you just have to go. And yeah. look at Savani's photography. Too. And look at photography. <laughs> yeah. You. Just know that you might not get an exact sense of the scale. <laughs> but one thing I love about the photos that I've seen that you've taken of the icebergs, which again are just fantastic. Uh, is the colors in the ice, right? It's not just, it's not just big, they're not just big ice cubes. They're not just white, you know, snowballs. Right. Tell us about the colors and about how the light interplays and how that affects the photography. So the ice down there is very blue often. And, and that's glacial ice. It's a, it's a, you know, what I call it glacial blue because I, there's no other word for that blue that I've ever seen. And what happens and, and, the reason it's that blue is because it's old. The older it is, the bluer it gets. Is that oxygen or what's, what's making it so blue? So what's happening is, so these are you know, coming off the glaciers and the ice shelves and, what, and all of that snow that has added up over thousands of years that created that ice core, as that weight gets piled on top, it starts pushing out the oxygen molecules and, and it, you know, it basically compresses it and makes it more dense. And what happens is you know, when we see white ice, it's because it's refracting all the light. It's just scattering all the light. Okay. And what happens is the blue gets absorbed in that as it gets more and more dense. And Interesting. so the the denser it is, the bluer it is, the older it is. Huh. Very interesting. So you can look at an iceberg and get a sense for how ancient it is by the color. It's thousands. Of, yeah, exactly. And, wow. and then you have what people call black ice, which you'll see occasionally. Uh, well, you'll see it in places and it's and it's just it's dark. 
I mean, it's just really dark. Huh. So my other, well, my other, I have many other big questions, but, but changing gears a little bit, something that I'm dying to know is, and it kind of hit me last night when I was going over the questions that I wanted to ask today, I, I realized I was overlooking something that is probably very obvious, but I thought, what do you do when you get to Antarctica? <laughs> and what I mean is, you know, we just talked about you're on the boat, you're seeing the icebergs and things, you've made the crossing, but you know, presumably you get off the boat. Is there, do you spend a lot of time actually trekking and hiking and that's, are you on the land outside a lot or is it mostly spent on the boat? I'm guessing there's not a lot of water skiing. What, what, what are the actual activities once you get down there? So it depends on the type of trip you're taking. And I've yeah. taken three kind of very different trips to Antarctica, but you spend a lot of time on the boat for sure. But depending on the trip and the size of your group, you get to spend a lot of time on land too. So I've kayaked in Antarctica. Oh, okay. All um, right. I've hiked in Antarctica. I've trekked across the ice in Antarctica. I've, you know, scrambled up icy mountainsides in Antarctica. And it just it depends on the group. It depends on what you're allowed to do. It depends on how many of you there are. And, you know, all those things come into play. And so we're, you know, doing the second trip I took was a small group on a sailboat. And we had the ability to do more sort of activity on land because we only had to manage, you know, eight people. Um, nine, you know, there were two professional sailors and then seven of us. And so we just had to manage our small group. And so we didn't have to worry too much about all of the logistics of it, which meant we got to spend a lot of time on land. Um, and all you had to do was sail across the roughest sea <laughs> in the world. After waiting three weeks for the for the sea to calm enough for them to actually make the crossing. <laughs> we didn't have to wait. We we left. You got on lucky. Time. Yeah. We I left on I time. I was talking to Stefani because sometimes she'll just say, Oh, and then you just do this and you're like, but <laughs> Right. No, yes. I, I just risked my life again to get there. But yeah. you know, you do that. But that you know, you the do pros that. and the cons of it, really. <laughs> on whole, I feel like it was a good decision. You know? It was. So what do you, we just talked about you kayak, yeah. you, what do you most look forward to? You know, is it your photographer largely? Is it, I mean, maybe there's not one thing, maybe that's even a silly question, but is there something in particular that you're like, I want to get down there and get on land, or I just love being on the boat. I want to be taking pictures or it's what, what, what are the particular experiences that stand out for you that, that, yeah, that, that, that stand out for you? I think generally there are two things that I look forward to the most. And one is the ice and getting to get close to that ice and getting to photograph that ice. And that's been something that I've had fun kind of watching change for me over the three trips. And how has it changed? Well, the first trip, it's just sensory overload. And I want to photograph everything. Right, right. right, um, right. And it was also when I was very early. I mean, I had just figured out that I liked photography. I, it was my first DSLR. And, DSLR. Uh, sorry, my first real camera. Oh, okay. I don't know. Did you know what that was, Sabine? <laughs> yes. Also, oh, you know yeah, what that was. Yeah, I okay, I don't know. I dabble in photography. Yeah, okay. thanks, it was it was my money. first camera where I could actually change all the settings and I had to do all of the things on my. You know, I could do all of the things on my own. That's why I didn't know what that was. <laughs> and and so I and that's what I took down to Antarctica. And so you know, was learning the camera, but it was also just like, I want to photograph all of it. And I think that's characteristic of being in a new place and being fascinated by a new place and then the second trip i not only had been there before but we also were there for a longer time and so How i long got were you to there? we were the whole trip was about three and a half weeks okay that's I a mean, long there time was, there was some sailing time though obviously it doesn't that includes the sailing time to get there and, get and back. what is the sailing time that's another interesting so on a big ship it's a day and a half two okay. days yeah. on our sailboat it was four days down and five days back oh wow so, big difference yeah yeah and 
But that's when I started really developing kind of a relationship with the ice. We talk about relationships with places, but I think sometimes we have relationships with very specific things in places. Mm -hmm. And for me in Antarctica, it's the ice. So tell us more about that. What's what's calling to you? What what, what about the ice? What tell us about your relationship with the ice? It's about sort of finding the personality in the ice, the character in the ice for me. And you know there there's so many different ice formations and the patterns and the colors and and for me Antarctica is always tonally this very warm place. I mean I get that the colors are are not necessarily that, but it feels warm to me. Okay, um, I need I need you to go a little deeper with that one. No, no, warm. I know, yeah. I know, no, I know, but I'm I'm really curious about that. Can you talk more about that? Because it's this place that makes you work for it, ah. right? But if you're willing to work for it, it opens up this world that you just don't have anywhere else, and you can't find anywhere else. But you have to work for it, and once you do, that relationship is just there, and it's always there, and it doesn't go away. And, and for me, that was, you know, that was discovering all of these characteristics of the ice and that an iceberg, you know, could look intimidating and just be this monstrous thing, but it could also be beautiful and soft and subtle and all, you know, all of those things, just kind of like a person. You can have these different facets of, of a personality. Again, we come back to that earlier conversation about our relationships with places being like relationships with people. And now we're sort of taking that another another level to things or I don't, I don't want to call ice a thing because that almost doesn't seem enough, but to whatever the, the proper word would be to talk about ice. Absolutely. Yeah. And then this third trip, I went down and I think I almost exclusively, I think I took maybe a handful of photographs of, of wildlife. And what kind of wildlife can you hold that thought? I'm curious because yeah. that was one of my other questions. What kind of wildlife have you? It's penguins. Yeah. Uh, various, you know, different types of penguins, whales, seals, lots of seabirds. Um, pretty, you know, it's pretty impressive, and it's and it's also particularly neat. I, I do love wildlife, despite my like obsession with ice and with love of ice. ice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I do like you the like wildlife. you like animate objects as well. I do. Yeah. I swear I do. Yeah. But not really when I'm in Antarctica. <laughs> They take Unless a second. They, they take a backseat. They do take a backseat. The exception to that is sometimes with the penguin chicks. When there are chicks running around, oh my god, they're just too cute. <laughs> <laughs> you just you I can't bet. not. I bet. Yeah, <laughs> can't fault you for that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No one's gonna blame you for that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but there were no chicks on this trip because we went a little bit earlier. So there were you know a lot of penguins nesting, and um, and so I spent most of my time photographing the ice, and more than just photographing the ice, you know the differences in sort of the equipment I choose on trips has been interesting to me too. And this trip. I shot all of them almost entirely zoomed in. I shot abstracts of the icebergs for the most part and just capturing, trying to capture those little details and, and the patterns and, you know, those types of things, the textures and the colors. And that's what I did most of uh, on this trip. So is that sort of what, sorry, is that sort of what calls you back? Um, because I'm just curious, again, you're going back to the perhaps the most extreme place on Earth. And I mean, I guess you could say there's probably certain deserts that are also as extreme in, in different ways, but is what calls you back to something that extreme? Is it that there's just this endless opportunity for the creative exploration and for reconnecting with this ice that you feel such a connection with? Or is there, I guess the question is just, cause it seems like there's something deeper, right? There's something yeah. deep that's pulling you back. Right. And I, I think I said there were two things that I love about Antarctica that I love about going back. And the other one is experiencing the, very humbling solitude mm. that you experience when you're in Antarctica. And even when you're with a lot of other people, 
you know, there's always that moment. There's that moment where you find yourself on your own, even if it's just for a moment. And why is that? Well, because, you know, there's enough space and you might be on the ship and you might be the only one up late at night or you might be, you know, just various things. For me, the first trip, it was when I was kayaking. I mean, there were other people kayaking, but they were far enough away at one point and we were spaced out enough that I couldn't, you know, unless they were talking, I couldn't hear them. Yeah. And I didn't, they weren't directly in front of me, so I didn't have to see them. And so that's the closest I got to, to solitude, but it was that moment. And that was, that moment is incredibly powerful because you realize that you're tiny, uh-huh. right? Uh-huh. You're, you're insignificant <laughs> right. and it's wonderful. <laughs> All of, you know, the things that we worry about on a day-to-day basis just don't matter for a moment because this place is huge. And it is, it's just, and it's powerful. That perspective. Exactly. I think that's really hard to find these days, to find, to be in a place of grandeur alone. Exactly. I mean, I'm just thinking, I went to Yosemite recently, and it's like you have the scale and you have the potential to realize how small and insignificant you are, but then you also have the traffic and the tourists and the kids. and, And it just, there's something that's, totally different when you take away the background noise of humanity and you can interact right this whole this idea of sort of the silence of nature right because even in a place like yosemite even if you do happen to find yourself alone it's never really silent because nature in yosemite there are there are insects and birds and all of these things oh that's interesting so it's not just humans but just life <laughs> right right and there this are is times literal in, silence you're there talking are times about in antarctica where you can be outside and it's still silent that... and that doesn't happen really in most places. I mean, well, the only other place that's coming to mind again is the desert. Like the if desert? you're out in the, in, in a real desert, like the Sahara where there's just right. nothing else. The desert, some places in the Arctic. I mean, there are very few places where that can happen. Um, and then the second trip was the chance where I got to really experience solitude in Antarctica because we were such a small group and we had so much more freedom. And so there would be times where, you know, we would make a landing and then we'd just scatter and we'd all go in our own direction and we had a time when we had to be back and that was just it. And so getting to, you know, sit down and just watch the penguins for a minute or yeah. sit down and just watch the ice drift by. Or we had a, a sunset um, that was, you know, it was this iceberg graveyard, which is this place. It's a bay where these big icebergs drift in, they get blown in and then they get grounded because the bay is shallow. So they just get stuck there. Mm-hmm. And so you have all of these huge icebergs that are just sitting in this bay. Wow. And, you know, looking out over them and watching the sunset. And just it keeps life in perspective. Yeah, I want to go. Yeah, I know. It sounds so moving. It sounds so moving. You know, and there's and it's just so obvious. I mean, again, we've got 45 minutes, but we could just talk about this endlessly. I'm sure. Um, so, but it's also challenging too. I mean, she's talking about all these moments of magic, but then I also I imagine that it's just a really difficult place to be in my. Well, and that's where I was thinking about going next is what are some of the harrowing experiences? And I was hesitating to go there because we're talking about such magic, you know, (laughs) and I I was just sitting here hesitating because I thought, am I changing gears true dramatically? But yeah, I guess since Sabine wants to go there, let's go there. (laughs) Uh, We'll just ruin the mood and let's get dramatic. (laughs) What I mean, because there have to be, you know, and the one thing I was thinking, for example, that's maybe not as obvious is you talked about scattering. You guys are all scattering. So then I thought, well, and we talked about using compass earlier do the people who go on these trips do they have to have certain skills in order to because it seems that you know just letting anyone wander off in antarctica might not be a good idea or 
Because even diving, when I've gone on dive trips, right. you know, it's even easy to lose divers in a relatively small amount of space. Absolutely. You have to be really careful. So when you were talking about that, you're all scattering in Antarctica. I thought of, is that is that a concern? Well, so that's not something that happens on every trip, right? right. This was a very specific trip. The, um, the expedition leader, I mean, we had all been interviewed before we could go on this trip. You know, he put together a group because part of it was... Is everyone going to be safe? But the other part of it was, we're going to be on a sailboat together for nearly a month. Are we going to throw someone overboard? Right, right, right. right. <laughs> like, we don't want that and to happen. And you didn't, right? And we so didn't. No, we didn't. Just one. Just that one guy. <laughs> he was an asshole. No. That one guy. He deserved it. He deserved it. No, yeah. no guilt. They feel no guilt about that guy. But we had... And so there's that trip was sort of self-selecting in a lot of ways because the people who choose to go by sailboat to Antarctica are a little insane. I mean, I, and I can say that with all the love in the world because I'm one of them. We're a little crazy because it is difficult. I mean, it is a difficult trip. It's not just crossing the Drake Passage, right? It was a month without a shower. It was, you know, sleeping and really the only time I was ever warm was when I was in my sleeping bag. What's, what is the, why do you go by sailboat? Is it what's what's the difference? Why is it worth spending four days getting there versus one and then five days versus one and a half getting back? So obviously there's there's an advantage. What's the advantage? I think the big advantages are the smaller group because that was and that was why I a big part of why I chose to go by sailboat was I wanted to experience these these places without, you know, 100 other people around. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's also a sailboat can get into places that a big ship can't. Okay. Yeah. And there was more freedom because we only have to, you know, we could we could decide what we wanted to do to a certain extent. Because it's a small group, and so we could make those decisions on the fly. And if something was fantastic photographically, we could hang around. We didn't have to keep a schedule. And so that was that was a big perk of going on the sailboat. Yeah, yeah. And I bet you could find that solitude a lot easier. A whole lot easier. I mean, even on the boat, there were times when you'd be the only one sitting above deck. Yep. And, you know, you feel that. You yes. feel that solitude, even though you know that there are seven other people, eight other people on, you know, on this boat. They're not out there with you at that moment. Yeah, I just did that in Norway. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know, six months ago. I was I was in Norway and I took a boat up the coast, and we didn't get up to the Arctic Circle, but we were pretty far north. And I was too cheap to pay for a cabin because the cabin was going to be like three hundred dollars for one night, and that was it. Cost me four hundred dollars to get to Norway by plane. So I didn't get a cabin, and of course I was the only one who didn't. But it was almost midsummer, so the sun never went all the way down. It wasn't mm -hmm. quite midsummer yet, and being the only person out there and that I've never been on seas that were so smooth. I mean, it was like a lake. There was not a wave to be seen three, four, 5. AM. I'm the only one out there on the deck. It was just magical, just magical. And, and mm -hmm. as we already discussed, I'm sure it's that much more magical down there because it's that much more remote. and It's that much more isolated. And there's just something about the adventure of getting there at all. I mean, that to me is a big draw. There's, it goes back to, you know, I have to work for it. Right. Antarctica makes me work to get there and it makes being there. It makes being there so much more powerful. So let's get back to where we almost went a second ago. <laughs> Are there any times because, again, we're talking about mostly the, the positive experiences you've had, yeah. but we're also talking about how you have to work while you're down there. So right. have there ever been points where you just thought, I don't know that I can do this or I turn this boat around. I'm, and again, that goes back to the question we never kind of got to because I kind of disrailed us somewhat of of the the dramatic experiences. Absolutely, and and you know a lot of those were really on the second trip, 
because I'd never done anything like that before. I'd never spent that much time on a boat. I mean, I knew how to sail a little bit, but I'd been sailing on lakes in Texas, which is not the same. (laughs) (laughs) And I'd never spent that much time on a boat with strangers in seas that rough, you know, in, in seas like that and crossing the Drake Passage. It pushed my limits in a way that I'd never done before. And so there were definitely moments where I was like, what was I thinking? Like, why did I think this was a good idea? Yeah. And um, and one of those was, you know, <laughs> just getting onto the boat. <laughs> so how's that? How's so that? we were at this pier and the tide had gone out. And so getting onto the boat involved like climbing over and, you know, having to scale down the side of the pier and drop onto the deck. Did you, did you, you didn't have to get into the water. No, we didn't have yeah, to get yeah, into the yeah, water. Okay, I think okay. I would have been better off get, I had more to do that. Yeah, yeah. getting into the water. But I, you, you just know, had to climb and it was a big drop. It was a big drop and yeah. it was, you know, and I, yeah, I was a lawyer. I mean, I did adventurous things, but not like this, right? Okay, I'd never okay. done this. And that wasn't like a big, why, what am I doing here moment? But it was a, this is going to be a very different trip moment. But I love that you just said that because that shows that because my assumption, and I hadn't really thought about it, but my assumption is just, you know, Savani's always had this big adventuresome spirit. And and so for you to point out just then, well, wait, no, I had been a lawyer and I hadn't done a lot of this. So there was a lot of transformation that's come out of this. Absolutely. It wasn't just that you were just always this go get them. I'm always going to do whatever. You had to push yourself outside of your comfort zone. Absolutely. I mean, because I always had that with various things, right? I, I always had that, like, let's just go for it attitude, but it manifested in different ways. And, um, and you know, and I'd always loved to travel, and we traveled in, in sort of an adventurous way growing up, just because when you take a family to India, it's always an adventure. <laughs> and, yes, I'm and, sure it is. And, um, you know, but... It, I was also very sort of practical and very focused on school and those types of things. And so, yeah, I'd backpack through Guatemala, but I spending a month in Antarctica and just kind of, you know, on a sailboat with whole new level, different level for me. Yep. And, um, but the, the first big one on that trip was our very first night out in the Drake passage. And we go to bed we're in these bunks. I mean, there's no privacy on this, but we have bunks and we have cabins, but no doors are never closed. There's no real space. We wake up, to being thrown out of our bunks, luggage flying, the sound of glass breaking, and then all of a sudden there's smoke filling the cabin. And this is in the story. This is in the story. By the way, yeah. listeners, <laughs> this part of this this part of her adventures is in the story that's in the current edition of Hidden Compass. Yes. Continue. And we all jump out of bed and we, you know, it's like two steps to the hallway, but we meet in the hallway and it's just this sort of cacophony of what is happening? What are we doing? What needs to happen? Are now? we going down? And what do we you need said to there's do smoke. to help? There's, there's smoke, smoke in the cabin, right. right? That was the point at which it was one thing to just sort of wake up with this big giant wave and being jolted and all that. But when there's smoke filling the cabin, there's a different level of panic when you Not don't a know good what's sign. happening. And it's a small Not a good ship. Sign. And it's a small <laughs> ship. <laughs> Doesn't take too long to burn. <laughs> I imagine. <laughs> And, um, and so we're, you know, we run out there and I still remember we were always covered in feathers from our sleeping bags. It was just, they would, you know, it was just, that's the image, but, (laughs) and our captain walks out and he's like, it's fine. Just go back to bed. I'm like, I mean, okay. (laughs) Right. Cause there's really nothing I can do. If we're going down, we're going down. I might as well be asleep. (laughs) But a little more information might be welcome in that situation. We didn't get more information. We just got a, it's fine. Everything's fine. Go back to bed. So were you able to fall back asleep? I think I did. Yeah. I think I did because okay. it's like, well, you know, why The captain not? was pretty convincing, apparently. Well, it was very clear he knew what he was doing. 
But it was also clear that, you know, in the event that something was wrong, there's probably nothing we can really do about it. How quickly do you lose your life if you fall into those waters? It probably doesn't take very long. Probably not. I mean, God, I'd hope it'd be yeah. quick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, you know, it's big waves. It's it's cold. It's not the cold that, you know, we, we jumped into the water. In, oh, you in did? Antarctica. In Antarctica, yeah. Really? Yeah, you have some time. I mean, there's that initial cold shock, but... Interesting. I would have assumed that wasn't even possible. It's sort of a rite of passage. I won't get to the water here, into the water here at Ocean (laughs) Beach. Getting in in, in Antarctica. 28 degrees. Oh, my God. Oh, my gosh. How long do you stay in the water before you run out? Well, so it's funny because you have that initial cold shock, which tells you you should get out of the water immediately, which is true. I mean, you shouldn't hang out. But if you wait that out, you have a couple minutes where that settles and you're functional. But meanwhile, you have to stay moving, I think, right? You have to keep moving so that... No. Well, you don't want to drown. No, but I mean just to keep. <laughs> but I mean to keep the circulation Generally. going and to get acclimated. Yeah, it seems, I mean, it's, you would have to. Yeah, but nonetheless, I mean, you get in and then you want to get out quickly, and it takes time because nothing's functioning the way it's supposed to when you jump in. I mean, your muscles stop working. It feels that's like what you I'm can't talking breathe. about. Right. Like all of that's true. Right. Um. And so and so yeah. So you have that. And it's but it's a rite of passage. It's just a thing we do. Well, if I go down there, I probably won't be jumping in the water. That's I'm not. Fair. I'm not ashamed to admit it. I know it sounds like a life-changing experience oh you would do it you would do it okay but do you have if like I had a, enough peer pressure probably enough peer pressure okay but another one of these experiences yeah. that you're talking about yeah um was also on that trip and it was one of those times where we all scattered and i actually wrote about this in another story and it was this place and i, I i'm not sure if i remember the place the name of the place correctly but i think it was a place called dorian bay and we we scattered and slowly we spread out and you know there was no one else around and it was deep snow and it was and you know i'm exploring this penguin colony and i'm fascinated by this really adorable penguin chick that's just kind of resting its head <laughs> on an egg and you know, it's just i you know and and it's time to go and i look around and visibility has diminished rapidly snow is falling it's not gone right but but it's a lot less than it's it enough was. that you're concerned it's it enough like. that i'm concerned and i had a brief and i can't see anyone from my group uh, and I have this brief moment of panic where I'm like, well, what now? Right. Um, but then there is sort of the second moment of, you know what you're doing. Like you were pan- you know, you know where to go. You know how to find your way back. You know, which way the ship is, um, you know, and just trusting your, your abilities and your skills and your instincts in those situations. And that's an important lesson that it's hard to learn in a lot of places because we have these safety nets. It's Again. hard to learn in day-to-day life, and I think that's why adventure travel has become such a big draw for people is because you have those moments of fear, of feeling fully More alive. alive. More alive, And exactly. I think part of feeling alive is realizing that it's a temporary condition. <laughs> Absolutely. And not taking it for granted. Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Um, and, I, you know, and I remember making my way back to the ship and, you know, post-holing through the snow and, you know, it's knee deep and then thigh deep and then waist deep and but you just you know which way you're going you keep going and and that was huge for me because i'd never been in in a situation like that really not somewhere so remote um i'd been hiking i'd been doing all those things but even when you're as dangerous as it is when you're at a national park in the u.s you still feel like there's a safety net and um, and here you know i had my group they'd probably come looking for me at some point <laughs> hopefully yeah they would but um but still it was just it was a new experience for me and one that i really liked 
Savani wrote this amazing article for me once when I was an editor at the Adventure Collection where she was talking about uh, she was talking about the, this question that people asked her when she would go on these grand adventures of why. And she, she wrote about how in the days of exploration, people didn't ask why. People went to define boundaries to create, you know, new, I, to, to discover things. And it wasn't, you know, why would you do that? People did that and people risked their lives to a greater extent than you do now because you do have more safety measures. Uh, but I think, I think there's something to that of, you know, why do you do this? Right. And, and I think we've gotten so comfortable with, I mean, the trajectory of human sort of development is to minimize risk. And we live in an era where, yes, there's still a lot of risk. And, and obviously some people don't have the benefits that others, but as a whole, humanity faces less risk than we had in day to day than, day to we, day. than yep. we ever have. Right. Right. We don't worry about the same things that we used to, and we don't face the same challenges that we used to. And so I think part of that development has also been questioning why, if you don't have to face that risk, why would you ever choose to? But I think it's really important to incorporate that. I yeah. mean, I think it's really important to have that in your life. I think travel in general used to be that way, that it used to be, right. you had to work for it anywhere you went. Exactly. Up until very recently. And now you have to get your butt all the way to Antarctica to really <laughs> well, <laughs> right. discover again, what you're made of, I guess. Right. And again, going back to Bob, because it's been five minutes since we've talked about him. <laughs> but like I said, when we were talking about your current edition, that's one of the aspects that I loved about his story right. was it's, it's from that time. Yes. It's from that yes. time. And I think so many of us want to have those kind of adventures and it's tougher now I for all the reasons. I have nostalgia for that. Yeah. Like the, those times of, right. you know, where you didn't, if you set up um, a meeting with a helicopter and you missed it, that was it. Right. <laughs> you know, you, you're in right. trouble. When there weren't satellite phones and GPS. And I know that all of these things have great benefit. I get that. But. Right, they save lives. They We're do. not saying that's a bad thing. No, but but there is something lost with that safety net. Yeah. And for me, it goes back to you know going to India as a kid, because that was still a time when I mean it was not easy. It was not, and it was not easy to get around once you got to India. You know, to go from place to place. Yep. And it was learning to become, and this is sort of a thing that I always that I talk about a lot, but becoming comfortable with being uncomfortable. Yes. And I don't think, I think a lot of people, we want comfort and people want comfort. They don't want to be uncomfortable and you miss out on a lot. Yes. And one thing I like about that sort of that, that period and traveling in the fashion that you were just describing is, and I think it's a big difference and it's about technology. When we didn't have the GPS, when we didn't have everything planned out, when I would go someplace, you have to interact with people. Yes. You know, people, it's what's the most common response you get when you ask someone, why do you travel? Because I like to meet the people and get to know the culture. Well, back then, before GPS and all of this stuff we're talking about now, you know, when you went these places to find your way in India or even in Western Europe, you know, when 25 years ago, how do I get to such and such a place where well, you had to interact with the people? And that became right. oftentimes one of the, some of the richest experiences that yes. you would have while exactly. you were traveling. You have to be vulnerable. Right. 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 You have to open yourself. You have to ask for help. Exactly. And then people want to help other people. Mm -hmm. So then you end up making these these wonderful connections. So right. unfortunately, we have to wrap this up. But before we do, I want to ask one question. Uh, 
when are you going back next and can Sabine and I go with you? <laughs> I don't question. know, but absolutely. Okay. <laughs> That's a good answer. Um, Sabine, Savani, thank you very much for being here. This this was so much fun for me and I'd love to have you back to talk more about Antarctica. I also want to have you back to talk about photography just in general. Anytime. And um, Sabine is working on a book that we're not going to talk about yet, but that I would love to have her on I'd to talk to about when I, she's I ready know, maybe to. Maybe we can both interview people together. I thought we were a pretty good team. I felt that like I felt like it really worked. So you can tell that you've got the experience. This is my second time, but you used to have your own radio show. So it's, yeah, I'm not too bad in English either. No, in English you were amazing. It was almost as if it were your native language. Almost. <laughs> almost. I have a great. So thank you again for being here, thank and you I for look forward to the pleasure. next time thank you guys come by and visit.